0: welcome to river's edge church podcast each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate exegetical preaching of god's word so that you might belong believe and become like christ we hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with christ Let's, um let's crack into today's sermon and where we're going. So we've been doing a series on the life and death of Jesus, trying to lead up, using Lent as an opportunity to lead up to Jesus, uh, the resurrection, the cross, um, and many of us know a lot about those things. We've been trying to tackle some of the harder topics that are unusual, but we've been talking about the life and death of Jesus and specifically some of, not only some of the things he did, but also some of the things that he was known for. Um, so we, we went through the temptation in the wilderness, we talked about the transfiguration, which is a topic we don't always cover, we talked about the Son of Man title, and this week we're leading into, Je- or <coughs> leading into Jesus in Jerusalem. Um, just to catch everybody up from last week, as we looked at the Son of Man, we talked about Jesus' positioning and his understanding versus the understanding of the Jewish tradition of what he was. Um, Over and over, he was referred to as like Christ or Messiah, which we talked about was the same word translated in two different languages. Um, But Jesus referenced himself as the Son of Man 88 times. So that was a pretty important title to him. He thought of himself that way. So we talked about what that meant. And the reality of, for Jesus, was that he had an understanding his position as a king was not an earthly position. He had no interest in earthly power. He had no interest in earthly politics. He was pointing to his internal kingdom, the kingdom to come, the kingdom that's far greater than anything we could grasp here. And so <coughs> in that, we talked about how what does that impact with us, and one, it gives us this assurance, right? We serve an all-powerful, eternal king. Um, and it also, though, it gives us a call to live as citizens of that kingdom. And that's important. We, we should be living as if there's a king, because here's the thing about a king that's a little different than what we're used to as a democratic society. Um, you can't rewrite the king's charter. He's the king. Right? So just because I don't like something doesn't mean I get to rewrite it, change it, move from it. But it also means that everywhere I go, I'm a representative of it. I'm, I'm his image. I'm his reflection somewhere else. So it's just an idea that we want to keep in mind. Um, <clears throat> this week, we're going to be looking at Jesus in Jerusalem, and we're heading into the close of his ministry. And as this ministry winds down, he begins heading to Jerusalem. And at this point, word's gotten around. Jesus has been moving and making miracles happen. He's healed blind people. He's, you know, has a huge notoriety as a teacher. Um, it, there's the rumor that, of him being this Messiah, messianic figure. And so there's this movement happening around him. And more and more people are, are just coming to Jesus. And Jesus begins heading to Jerusalem where the only thing that waits for Jesus in Jerusalem is pain and suffering. And this is important. He still went. I mean, that's huge. He knew where he was going. He knew that there was nothing but the worst of what's going to happen to him waiting in Jerusalem, and he still went. And that's important. So we're going to be looking at a particular passage. I'm going to have Mark come down. He's going to read this passage for us, but we're going to be in Matthew 21. If you want to turn there, you can. If you want me to put it on the screen for you, it'll be there. Um, I know some people prefer it in hand. But we're going to be Matthew 21, and we're just going to read the first 13 verses of that. And it is a live mic. Yep.
1: When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Unite them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple And throughout all those buying and selling, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Word of God.
0: As we look at this passage today... one of the things that we need to note at the beginning of this is that there's a lot of ways this, this passage could go. There's a lot of things you could learn from it. What we're going to focus on, though, is the heart of a worshiper. What does the heart of worship look like? And we get three different forms of this throughout the passage, and I'm going to point them out to you. Um, and, and it's beautiful to see how Jesus is acknowledging and pointing out the most important fact about worship, which is our hearts. It's, it's not about what, what song list we're singing that day. It's not about how many people know that we're doing it. It's not about the, the mode of how we're worshiping. It's our heart that matters most. And so as we look at this, there's going to be three places where we see this. Um, we're going to see it, one, in the heart of the disciples. We're going to see it, two, in the heart of the masses. And then finally, we're going to see it in the heart of those of the merchants. So just walk with me as we go through this today. So um, first we see that Jesus spent a majority of his... Um, Ministry just avoiding this idea Of king and messiah over and over again There's references to like where people would want to Grab him and make king right he's like oh we're Going to make Jesus the king and he would have To like just disappear or just confuse Them and walk out of the crowd over and over Though he avoided this like the plague Okay Um, but for the First time he finally embraces it this is the first time he kind of embraces and steps into this. And uh, we see this because, one, there's a prophecy that's being fulfilled here, and they reference it. This prophecy is from Zechariah 9.9, 9, okay? Uh, I'm going to read you that passage. I think it's good. So it says here, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here he has this passage that we see. Now, mind you, Jesus is always making an impact on those who are the most self-righteous. So most of the Jewish men and women in this era, especially those with any form of education, would know exactly what they're referencing. Because the messianic theme is almost constantly being talked about. You're talking about a group of people who have been oppressed for thousands of years. Oppressed. They've been pushed down. The Romans, before the Romans, it was the, the, you know, the, the Palestinians, before the Palestinians, it was the Byzantinians. It was over and over and over again we see them being pushed down, right? And so they can't wait for another king. They're excited, and that's what they talk about constantly. So all of these old prophecies from these prophets that were around, like Zechariah, Elijah, Isaiah, they know and have really highlighted it in their own thought process. I want you to think about today, right? Every time something bad happens in the world, you see like an immediate flood to Facebook about how the end of the world's coming, apocalypse here, and this is the sign, right? Like we do. It's our nature. We do that. It's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just the reality. We're always trying to figure out what God's going to do, as were the Jewish people. So Jesus leans into this, and it's prophesized, oh, he'll be riding the foal of a donkey, right? This, this little donkey that's going to come in. And this was so common a practice for kings back then. Um, There's four or five different references in the Old Testament. I won't cover them all, Um, but again, a king would when he was um, exploring his kingdom or he is coming in victorious, he would get a donkey or a foal, and he would ride on it. And it would be lavishly laid out, and there'd be bunches of people, most of them ordered to be there, and they would lay, they would throw out this like red carpet. They'd put out all these flowers put out, they would put down fine linens for him to walk on. It was like a big show. So think like the Oscars for kings, okay? That's what he was shooting for. And so Jesus is emulating that, but he's also, in some ways, he's kind of making fun of it. He's poking at it because he's going to have these things, but they're going to be like the wish version of that, right? Like it's it's not lavish. It's not, there's not the fanfare of the rich and famous. It's it's It looks scraggly, but it's real. And, and it's really important because There's something that the disciples do that we need to make note of. So as Jesus is telling them this, the disciples kind of all of a sudden realize, okay, Jesus is doing something here with this whole king thing. Now, mind you, the disciples were still very confused. Like, they didn't see Jesus as on the cross. They saw Jesus as the king. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. So when he's like, go get a foal, they're already thinking about this passage. And they're thinking about a, entering, conquering, victorious king as well. Now, when the kings would ride into the cities, they would have these elaborate, fancy linens hanging off of their donkey. They would be dressed in the finest attire, right? Because it's a big show. But see, Jesus doesn't have that. So the disciples, in their desire to honor Jesus, take off the best thing they have, their outer robe, and they throw it on these donkeys. Now, it's not... Lavish. It's not a tapestry of fine linens and, and arts, you know, artisanship. What it is, though, is these men were desiring to see Jesus be honored and glorified properly. So they took what little they had. They took the one thing that they had that, they, that was the finest thing that they did own, even though it wasn't a lot, and they draped it over these colts, over these donkeys, so that Jesus could ride on something. So it would look at least somewhat resembling what Jesus wanted to do. And the reality here is they did this because of their desire to see Jesus glorified. That was their heart of worship here. So they gave, they sacrificially gave. They gave everything that they could. They recognized Jesus needed something and they gave it without hesitation so that he could be glorified. That's why they did it. Now Jesus continues Toward the crowd and they began praising him and celebrating him and worshiping him right And these masses they all gathered around who he, where he was And they started chanting him to him right they they said that he uh They said he was a uh, hosanna they said this word hosanna several times i'll read the verse to you it's in 19 It says then the crowds who went ahead of him those who followed shouted Hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord Hosanna to the hev- highest heaven now, this word, Hosanna, is a, It's an interesting word. So it means to save us. Like, it's not a title. It's, it's a cry. Hosanna, save us. And, and here's the hard part of understanding this, is that they did want Jesus to come and save them. They were desiring this. They, they, were, they were pouring their heart out to this. But the reality was, what they really wanted to be saved from wasn't the eternal damnation or their sinful life or anything like that. What they wanted was his miracles. What they wanted to be saved from was their physical afflictions, their, their physical issues. Their, their, they wanted to be saved from the Romans, right? Their, their oppression in this world. And they wanted Jesus to come and make his kingdom, but they wanted it now. They wanted his unearthly kingdom with him. They wanted glory in this kingdom and not in his. So their worship, even though it was more traditional, what we would call worship, right? When we gather together and we sing, we even have a song called Hosanna, right? When we get together and we sing and we think we're worshiping, we cannot be worshiping. We can be honestly just saying, God, I want you to do what I want you to do. I lived 30 years that way. That was my life for 30 years. God, give me what I want. I I, I believe you're all powerful. I'll come to church. I'll check off all the checklists. I'll read my Bible. I'll say the right things. Give me what I want. I have a plan over here. I need you to give me what I want. And that's what a lot of these people were doing. They were saying the right things. They were praising Jesus. In fact, it's interesting because even in the crowd, there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees, and they were like, hey, you need to tell these people to stop. This this is heresy. And he's like, if they didn't say it, the rocks would. So Jesus didn't condemn what they were saying. But Jesus understood their heart. This is where you know they were wrong. This is how you know they were wrong. Five days from now, give or take six maybe, these same people were screaming, crucify him. Give us Barnabas. These same people were the ones who wanted him to die. These same people were frustrated with him because he didn't overturn the Roman government. That's how you know where their heart was. Their heart of worship wasn't where it was supposed to be, even though their outward worship was. Then we go to verse 12 and 13. And it says that Jesus went into the temple, and he threw out all those buying and selling. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Hence the the T-shirts today, <laughs> right? And I've read this story a lot of times. I, I, I sometimes I've seen this being used, and, and often sometimes even abused. It's like Jesus had righteous anger, and he sometimes we need to get angry at people. And we need to flip some tables. We need to be a table flipping Jesus, right? Sounds like a very Christian curse word. <laughs> But understand this, the first place that Jesus goes once he goes into the city is to his father's house. I spent a little bit of time this week, and in that process, there were some guys who spent a lot of time, like an enormous amount of time, just talking about the temple and the setup. And it's hard for me to wrap my head around this. Um, This temple wasn't just like a, a building. Like when we think of like temples and we think about like churches, Like we've seen some big churches. Like, right, there's a couple of them in there. We've driven by a big church. Like, man, that's a big church. But we don't understand the gravity of how big this place was and how extravagant it was. The temple Jesus entered wasn't even the original temple, which was supposed to be just so magnificent that when it was destroyed and they rebuilt it, the old men who had seen the original temple cried because it wasn't even close to the same one. And it was still magnificent. But they talk about what it took to build it, and on one part of it, so the temple's built on a hill, on a mountain, right, Mount Moriah, and it's not big enough to hold the whole temple. So they had to build walls to hold all of it. And so one of the walls is 600 feet high that Solomon built. It's this magnificently large wall that goes straight up. And Jesus would enter into this almost the same way he did as a child. And so the same place that the 12-year-old Jesus went and schooled all the scribes and and spent three days just soaking up knowledge and expounding on the passages with the teachers there is the same place that he goes to immediately. And when he goes in there, it's important that we understand this. He didn't just go into the temple. No one goes in the temple except the high priest. We can't, you can't, no one can. It's a holy place. But the way that it was built is there were courts, there were little round places you could go to where you were positioned for worship. So the farthest court out was what's called the Court of the Gentiles. And in this court was where all the people who weren't Jews or weren't full-blooded Jews could go and they could hear the music as it reverberated out of the temple. They could worship God. They could offer up their offerings. This was where they could go. And in there, in that court, was where all of the merchants set up. Why? The Gentiles aren't that important, right? They're not, they're not as holy as we are, and we need all these things. See, in the temple, you could only give a shekel, which is a Jewish coin. It's the only coin allowed in the temple, in the treasury, so you had to change your money. So if I'm coming from another place, like Judea, Samaria, I have to exchange my money. So we ne- they needed money changers. It says that there were dove sellers, for it, right, people who sold doves. Well, the poorer people who couldn't afford a proper lamb or a proper cow had to use doves. And doves were terrible to transport, so they needed these people. It was a business for them, but it was also a vital part of this sacrificial system. So it wasn't that these people were doing wrong things. Surely there were other things happening. But note what he told what, what the two people that he really focuses on are the two parts that were vital to the worship of in the temple. But you see, much like all things, you let a little money get in there. And it's funny how that changes people, right? I mean, we know lots of people. We, we There's lots of people we know right now who we know have been drastically impacted by money. Money does funny things to people, isn't it? And that's what had happened. It had turned these things that were much needed into a place where things could be fraudulent Things could be perverted, misused. People could be taken advantage of. And so Jesus goes in here. And what's interesting is, is after he flips over and he has this righteous anger, and and a lot of people talk about how, like, even Jesus got angry. Yeah, sure he does. Because who wouldn't get upset when God's being defiled? Right? Like, that makes sense. That's not a new thing. The Bible doesn't say don't be angry. It says be slow to anger. Anger's an emotion, but it's one we need to control. But Jesus makes a quote, and it's actually two quotes, and there was one of them that just fascinated me because no one ever talks about it. So I want to read it to you. It's in Jeremiah, and it's, just, it's interesting because he throws it in at the end, and it's just real subtle. So this is the quote from Jeremiah, and I I'm going to point to where it says, he talks about a den of thieves, right? So I need to bring you into the whole passage. So Jeremiah is preaching in 7, chapter 7, and it's 5 through 11. It says, instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves. I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Jesus quotes two different places. He quotes Isaiah where it talks about the Lord's temple being a house of prayer. And then he throws in this little den of thieves thing. Because what he's reminding them that is that God has told them over and over again. Quit doing your thing. And then coming in my house and celebrating and and giving sacrifices. I don't want them. Take your sacrifices with you. There's a place in Hosea where it talks about God being made ill. Like who wants to vomit from the smell of their sacrifices because it's so detestable to him. And over and over, Jesus is pointing to the same thing. He's like, you people come in here and you say you're devout, and you do devout things, and you say that you want to follow and believe me, but then you, you, are, you pervert the actual house of God by coming in and taking advantage of people. And you do it in the court of the most, uh, of the one place, the one people that need me most, the Gentiles, right? Because most Gentiles in Jerusalem would be what? They'd be foreigners. These are the most you know the the people who are need the least amount of disadvantage at right they like they're in trouble. most of them are isolated, they're alone, they don't know the language and Christ is infuriated by it. Now again, this story's really great and there's there's a lot of things in here that point to all these prophecies that are being fulfilled. But like anything that we do, it's important to take note that these messages aren't only for them, but there's also some for us. What do we need to learn from here? And this is what I hope you take home today. It's easy for us to point out from a distance the sins of those in these stories. It's easy for us to sit here and go, "Man, look at those merchants. They were selling stuff in Jesus' house. It wasn't even about the fact they were selling things, right? It's not. That, that's not the detestable part." that part only added to the fuel. It only allowed for them to, to follow after their sins. It wasn't the detestable part that the Jewish people were on the side of the road screaming to Jesus and throwing out palm branches. That's not bad. That's not bad. The real question is, what would Jesus say if he was here today? Like, if he came as a guest preacher, what were the things he would tell us? What were the things that he would, we, he would admonish us in? Right? He would challenge us to change. And sure, there would be those churches who pimped out the gospel for financial gain. Surely there would be. Those would be the easy churches that we can point to. Yeah, like, that's awful. Like, why is he doing that? But I think he'd more speak to the people of the churches, much like all the apostles did in the epistles. Because here's the thing, a lot of us, we come and we do, uh, you know, we come, but we serve, and when we serve, we do so begrudgingly, right? Or when we come and we give, we do so reluctantly. Or when we come and worship, we do so hesitantly. We pray sporadically, we read occasionally. We don't live sacrificially. I ran out of words that rhymed. I had to break it a little bit. But here's the thing. When Jesus comes into our lives... He does the same thing he did when he went in that temple. He disrupts it. I want to read you a verse as we get ready to close. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's Paul talking to the Corinthians, but he's also talking to Christians. Go figure. And he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is with you, who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You know what Paul said? He said, you are a temple for the, for the Holy Spirit. You are. And just like Jesus went into that temple, when he comes into our lives, that's exactly what he does. He comes in and he starts flipping tables. That's what he does. And he admonishes us. He says, This is a house of prayer now. This is mine. It's not yours. It's my Father's house. This is where the Holy Spirit's going to reside. And I don't like this stuff. And here's what's interesting when we're not really close with Jesus, when Jesus, we don't invite him into our house regularly. Because sometimes we think it's a one-part process. No, you've got you've to work at keeping Jesus in your life. You've got to let him in to change some things, to flip some tables, to kick things out. Because when we don't, guess what happens? They come back. John talks about there was a time where Jesus went to the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and he does the same thing. He even braids a whip, and it's like walking around like Indiana Jones, just cracking whips and getting people out of there. And guess what they did? They came back. Right? They came back. There's too much money in this. We know that too much money in that game. And guess what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Guess what happened probably the next Sunday or the next Saturday or the next festival that was 50 days away? They were selling stuff because he wasn't there anymore. The same thing happens to us. When we invite Jesus into this temple the very first time, and he flips over a couple tables, man, it feels good. And then the work begins and we kind of slide a little bit, right? Or we don't have somebody walking along us, antagonizing us, and continue to push us forward. And so we, we don't have him in our life as regularly, and things become a little sloppy, and we become a little less like a house of prayer. And our hearts get a little harder. But here's the good news. Jesus would be happy to come back in and throw some more tables around. He'd be more than happy, more than willing. He's waiting. We just have to let him in this is a temple and no the concern isn't about how many tattoos you have the concern isn't about like if, if you're taking care. the concern is your heart is your heart worshiping God well is it desire to glorify God or is it about the glorifying yourself so we're gonna get ready to close I'm gonna have our team come up and they're gonna hobble their way here <laughs> my wife loved that joke you really did. And as they do that, I want to encourage you to take a moment just to think beyond what's going on in your personal life right this exact moment. But really just challenge yourself. Like, what, what do I need to let God come in and do differently in my life? What's, what am I holding on to? What tables have I let someone set up in my life that's continuing to have a, you know, a place that doesn't belong? What's hindering me from being a house of worship? What's hindering my heart from worshiping well? And as we do that, we're going to close in some prayer, and then we're going to sing. And we're actually going to sing Here I Am to Worship, because I did that on purpose. Um, And I hope that that's what you are. I hope you're present in this moment and just worshiping. Not so you can get something, not for gain, not even just to check off the list, but just be here and worship God for a minute. Say, God, you are great. God, you are wonderful. And no matter what I got going on in my life, God, you're there, and you are good, and I'm trusting you to continue to move. So let's pray. thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church Have a blessed week.